Let's open our Bibles up this morning to Revelation chapter 22. It's the last chapter of Revelation and consequently the last chapter of the Bible. And when we finish up here, we'll go right back to the beginning. So after this week, I'm going to give you a homework assignment, and it's going to sound daunting, but it's not. You'll see what that is. In chapter 21, we saw this new Jerusalem, a city made by God as an eternal dwelling place for him and his people. The construction of that city is unlike anything we've seen on this present earth. It's got these walls made of jasper. Presumably, it's a diamond-like material, maybe diamond. It's got these foundations, these huge slabs of precious stones, the likes of which have never been seen on earth. And it's got these streets of pure gold that John says are clear like glass. The sheer magnitude of this city is almost incomprehensible with the length of one of its sides roughly equivalent to the distance between Los Angeles, California, and Dallas, Texas. And remember, this is a cube-shaped city. The fact is, if an object that large was resting on the present Earth's surface, it would throw off the Earth's rotation. It's too large to be sustained there. So not all commentators and scholars agree on this point, but it seems that the city has two options. One, it's either suspended off of the surface of the earth and it stays there, or another possibility is that God creates the new earth much larger than the present earth so that it could sustain something of this magnitude on its surface. So the, the, the sheer size of this city is, is crazy. And now at the beginning of chapter 22, John is still being shown this glorious city by this angel, but now he gets a brief look inside the city. We don't have a lot of description from inside the city, but what we have is most telling. Most of the description that we've had up to this point is from the exterior. John's perspective as he looks onto the city. Um, the only exception there is the streets of gold. He did mention that it has streets of gold, clear as glass. Now it seems this angel takes John on an interior tour of the city, and he's shown this river, this tree of life, and the people inside the city. Let's go ahead and read through together chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 to start. And he, that is the angel, showed me, which is John, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, 
There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This river is the first thing that John mentions about the interior of the city, save for the streets. This pure river is also clear as crystal. That's a common theme that we've been seeing. A lot of these things are clear, and no doubt that speaks to God's purity. The clearness speaks to his purity, his holiness. And in this, the theme of water, and specifically the living water, is wrapped up. It's come to its conclusion. All throughout the Bible, we've seen water, even Jesus speaking of living water, and it symbolized something. It symbolizes a couple of things. One is this river of the water of life. This is the end of all of that imagery. We've seen the rock in the wilderness that gave water to the Israelites as they were wandering about. And Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. Christ is the source of the water. We've seen Jesus telling the woman at the well that he would give her water that would become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Everlasting life coming from this water that Jesus provides. No coincidence. That is from the water of life. This is the river that everything points to. The very first reference to water, um, to a river in the Bible, is that river that ran through the Garden of Eden. It's God's original paradise. There is a river there. Genesis 2.10 says that the purpose of that river was to water the garden. There was no need for irrigation systems. God had a built-in irrigation system into the garden. And this river in Eden was only a type of this river that we now see in Revelation 22, the river of life. And all the times Christ said he would give living water to anyone who asks seems to point to the water of this very river. Ezekiel's description of the millennial temple includes the mention of a river flowing out of the temple during Christ's reign on earth. Don't get this confused with the river that we're presently looking at in chapter 22. This is the millennial river of the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes. You'll see mention of this in Ezekiel 47. It lists some striking features of this millennial river, which seem to point straight to this river in the New Jerusalem. Let's look at some of those similarities. Ezekiel 47.1 says that water flows from under the temple. Revelation 22, verse 1, says that water flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Again, we're contrasting this millennial temple and the river that flows out of it with this throne of God in the New Jerusalem and the river that proceeds from it. In Ezekiel, that river gives life 
to the waters that it flows into. And specifically, that would be the Dead Sea. It will give life to the Dead Sea. In Revelation 22, this river gives life to all who partake of it. The millennial river, the description says that there are trees on both sides of the river. Here in Revelation 22, the tree of life, a single tree, is on both sides of this river. In Ezekiel, the trees that are by the river bear good fruit every month. And in Revelation, the tree of life bears fruit every month. And in both, the leaves of the trees have a certain medicinal value. There's a certain therapeutic value to the leaves of this tree. In Ezekiel, the waters of the river heal other waters, the Dead Sea. And in Revelation, the leaves of the tree of life heal the nations, which we'll look at. So we see that even the river flowing from the millennial temple is a shadow of this river that is to be proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem. And this throne of God and of the Lamb is referring to a single throne. It's not talking about two different thrones. Verse 2 says, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So in the middle of the city's street, And on either side of the river was this tree of life. And you may recall that this tree of life was the same one that was in the Garden of Eden alongside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve lost their privilege to eat of the tree of life when they sinned. God had to put a guard at the entrance of the garden and kick Adam and Eve out so that they would not eat from this tree of life. So what changed between then and here in Revelation 22? I mean, the insinuation is that we can eat of the fruit of this tree. What changed between the garden scene and this scene? Why was it such a big deal that Adam and Eve not eat of the tree of life, that God had to kick them out of the garden and set an angel to guard it? It's because they had fallen. And eating from the tree of life would eternally lock them into that fallen state. God had a better plan. He sent his son, he died, he rose again, conquering death and the grave, and bringing the creation back to God. That's the plan. And it's played out here in Revelation 22. In Romans 8.20, Paul tells us that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility here is speaking to the increase of entropy or chaos in the universe. It's the second law of thermodynamics, if you're familiar with that. The entropy of the entire universe as a closed, isolated system will always increase over time. That means that things will always become more and more chaotic. In other words, things are moving downhill. 
energy becomes less and less available and chaos reigns. But Paul tells us that it was by design that God subjected the universe to the bondage of decay, this entropy. And he did so in hope, knowing that it would not always be that way. We see in verse 3 that there shall be no more curse. This is the curse that he's talking about. In this new Jerusalem, all is made right. Everything is as it should be. John writes that this tree bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. That word tree after the comma is probably italicized in your Bible. That means that it was not included in the original manuscripts. So it would read, bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. This is a single tree that we have in view, the tree of life. It is not multiple trees. And now, I don't know if this is saying that there will be 12 different kinds of fruit growing on this same tree or 12 fruits of the same kind growing on this tree. Uh, but I do know that whichever one it is, I'm not going to be disappointed. And I wonder what kind of fruit these are. And these are just the places that my mind goes when I look at something like this. What kind of fruits are we going to have in heaven? You know, this is the eternal state. This is heaven. What kind of fruits are we going to have there? I just have a feeling that they're nothing like what we have on earth. Probably not going to be apples, although I wouldn't be particularly upset if they were. Might be upset if they were mangoes. I, I actually like a pretty good variety of fruit. I do. But I'm sure that whatever this fruit is like, it's going to be so far and beyond whatever we can munch on down here. And we see something else interesting from this sentence. It says, yielding its fruit every month. And we can easily gloss over this little bit because it reads so comfortably to us that there will be months. Now, we've lived with months our entire lives, but we've already read that there's no need of the sun and the moon because God is the light in this city. So if God didn't bother recreating those celestial bodies, which today we use, to determine days, months, weeks, years, our time, how does he keep track of months? Have we been doing it wrong this whole time? Now, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's, what's going to happen there, but it does beg the question. You know, we keep track of the months based on how much of the moon is reflecting the sun. Is that just a shadow of something real? Is that just what we have right now that gets the job done, but there's something more true, more real that God is going to use to keep the months? We'll see. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And you say, 
but I thought there was no sickness, no death here. How come the nations need healing? Well, that's a good question. The Greek word that's translated healing is therapia. And I'm sure you can tell that that's where we get our words therapeutic or therapy. And this doesn't mean necessarily healing from sickness. It means maintaining health. And in the Greek, it speaks of an invigoration, an exhilaration. Not just health, but an invigorating fullness of health. There's an invigorating and therapeutic property to the leaves of this tree of life. And that's for us to enjoy and partake of throughout eternity. You'll never have to be tired. You'll never have to struggle to keep your eyes open during the Bible study. You know, sometimes I feel that way and I'm giving them. It's tough because we get tired, we become uninvigorated, but no more. We can enjoy this and partake of it. You know, that, that also means that we have energy to do the other things that we love. You know, we've all been gifted with certain things, and we won't lose our individuality when we get to this new Jerusalem. You don't step in and become a number or something. You retain your individuality. That's really beautiful. Heaven will be a diverse place. And at the same time, it's very, uh, what's the word? We're all the same. We're all very diverse, but still very much the same in how we got there and why we got there. Verse 3 says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. No more curse. That means no more separation from God. That curse that had been pronounced upon creation ever since the fall of man will be repealed. And that can be done justly because of what Christ has done on our behalf. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. I think some of us forget sometimes, and I'll throw myself in here, that God gave work to Adam before the fall. When everything was perfect, God gave Adam something to do. Work existed in the perfect Garden of Eden. And of course, after the fall, it was much harder for us to eke out a living from the ground. But work does exist in a perfect form. And John is telling us now that we are going to serve the Lord in the New Jerusalem. We will work for him. His servants shall serve him. I'm convinced that this will not be toilsome work, but fruitful. You know, you've probably been in a place before where you felt like you just had to destroy yourself to get something done, to just get the job done. It just didn't come naturally to you. 
but here you'll be serving the Lord with your special skills and abilities. We won't just lose our individuality when we get here. You'll still have what you're good at. Now, I'm a little concerned because I'm teaching the Bible. And when we get there, I don't know what I'm going to do. A little concerning to me. No, I'll be fine. But you won't need Bible studies because you'll have the Word of God right in front of you. You get to look in his eyes. You'll still be you, and you'll use the gifts that God has given you to serve him. You know, kind of like what we should be doing now, except better. They shall see his face. Whose face? Jesus' face. God's face. The word of God. You'll look into his eyes. No doubt this is the fulfillment of what John, what he wrote in his first epistle. He said, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now, we see through a a dark lens. Things are still a little fuzzy for us. At this time, nothing can be made clearer. We will be staring into the eyes of our Creator and our Savior for eternity. Now, don't misunderstand me. We will always be finite beings. We're created beings. We're not eternal but God has made us to live with him forever. The cool thing about God being eternal and us being finite is that every time we look at him, it will be like the first time. Every time we look at him, we'll see something new, something we hadn't seen before. No man has seen the fullness of, of the glory of God. And in our bodies now, we wouldn't be able to survive it. His holiness would overpower us. But when we are made to be like his son in glory, we will be able to look into his eyes and we will fellowship with him like we were created to. And his name shall be on their foreheads on our foreheads, on each one of our foreheads will be the name of Almighty God, of Jesus Christ, the one who paid for our admission into this city. What a tragedy it is in the church when we treat other believers like trash. What a tragedy. It's so sad because we were all bought by the same blood, yet here we are treating each other poorly. No one deserves to be a child of God, yet here we are. Maybe if we could see the name of God written on each one of our fellow Christians' foreheads, 
we would start treating each other like the priceless treasures that they are. Maybe that's what we need to get our act together. So many problems would be solved if we just could see others like Christ sees them. That is, dare I say, one of the biggest problems in the church. We don't see each other like Christ sees our fellow Christians. How sad. But here, his name shall be on their foreheads. I think it's a bit informative and probably good that it's on our foreheads and not on our hands, because I can look down and see God's name on my hand. I can't see it on my forehead necessarily. That keeps me in the right mindset of looking at all of you and seeing God's name, but not getting caught up with mine. I can look out and I can see, it's like somebody who wears a Rolex. And I'm not picking on you if you own a Rolex, but you'll see some people sometimes that wear these fancy watches, always checking the time, like, hey, what time is it now? Oh, it's time for me to go over there. And they'll, they'll kind of brandish it as something to be shown off. And I think that the placement of his name is going to mitigate that. Now, of course, no sin nature, so I'm being a little bit facetious here. But the, the forehead is the perfect place for his name. You remember the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast was given on the forehead or on the hand, the arm. Now, that is very obviously a counterfeit, a perversion of this, of God's name written on the forehead. You saw the sealed servants of God, those 144,000 Jews. They were sealed with a mark of God on their foreheads. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, he's more or less reiterating what he said in chapter 21 with no night. They don't need lamps or the sun. God gives them light. They shall reign forever and ever. And they will reign as kings and priests with him. Now, verse 5 here in chapter 22 effectively ends the biblical narrative. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verse 5, the whole redemptive story plays out. The rest of this chapter is an epilogue, if you will. It's a final exhortation to the people of God. And I want you to pay attention to what God wants to leave you with right here. There's something about last words, isn't there? Something special that makes you really want to listen to them. These are the last words in this biblical narrative. What does God want to leave you with. 
There's no more curse. He is there with us. We will serve him. We will see his face and he will give us light. What a remarkable way to sign off. Promises fulfilled and lives made whole in this new Jerusalem. Let's read through verse 6 through 13. Then he said to me, this is the angel speaking now, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now Jesus breaks through and speaks. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And Jesus again, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In verse 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Again, we have this pair of words, faithful and true, that is dependable and genuine or sincere. Throughout the book, we've gotten these little reminders that what we're reading, what we are seeing through John's eyes is absolutely, verifiably true. There's not another book that takes such great care in guarding the things contained in it. Guarding from attacks from outside and attacks from inside from adding or taking away from it. And of course, God knew that the enemy would attack Revelation specifically. And that's probably why he made it so clear for us. This book is to be trusted. And no wonder why the enemy attacks Revelation with such tenacity. It tells us exactly where he's going. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. He hates that. He resents it. And so he attacks this book. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Remember that this whole book of Revelation was written to send out to the churches of Asia. 
God revealed these things to his servants, that's us, by the way, so that we can live by them, so that we can keep them, not so we can argue about our views on them, not so it divides us. It shouldn't do that. It should edify, and we should live by these things. And these things must shortly take place. I'll tell you something. We are closer today than we were yesterday. And I know that sounds very obvious, but look, just look around us. Well, obviously, it didn't come shortly. It's been almost 2,000 years since this was written, and we're still waiting. Well, yeah, but it's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying that when all of this gets ramped up, it will move at a breakneck speed. It will start snowballing. This word translated shortly can more accurately be translated with rapid succession. We get our word tachometer from this Greek word. What does a tachometer measure? RPMs, revolutions per minute. How fast each revolution follows the other. The events recorded in Revelation will pick up speed like a snowball rolling down a slope. They'll come faster and faster. Chapters 2 and 3, you remember, cover about 2,000 years of church history. Chapters 5 through 19, I'm sorry, 4 through 19, cover seven years. And then on from there. The detail that we get in that tribulation period is unlike the detail that we've gotten before. Things will start happening quicker and quicker. Jesus says here in verse 7, Behold, that means think about this. Call this thing to your attention. I am coming quickly. Those who will try to discredit or play down the importance of Revelation will give you the old spiel, well, it hasn't come yet. It's probably never going to. It's been 2,000 years since this whole thing was written, and we're still waiting on this return of Christ. Peter writes that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers in the last days. Have you heard anybody say something like that? Probably so. And in verse 8, speaking in the context of those mocking his coming, this is in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Peter then writes, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. From Christ's point of view, he's been waiting for a couple days to make his return. He is coming quickly. P. 
Peter also explains why it seems to us like the Lord is taking a long time to return. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does he wait as long as he has? Because he wants more people to be born into his family. He's patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish who would accept him. And so he waits until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And then there are others who try to put away the book of Revelation by saying that everything contained in it has already happened. The preterists, they're saying that everything happened by 70 AD. Well, that's not possible because it was written in 95 AD. We are assured in more than one place that these words are dependable and that they're genuine. They're faithful and true. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That is the sixth of seven beatitudes in Revelation. Blessed is he who. The last one is in verse 14, which we'll come to later. And this one harkens back to the first. You remember in Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I want you to notice what is left out now in chapter 22 when compared to that first beatitude. The reading and the hearing is over. It's already taken place. All that's left to do now is to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. You've already read and you've already heard these things, and now it's up to you to decide what you want to do with them. Will you let them change the way you act, how you conduct yourself? Verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. You know that John was instructed to send this book to the churches of Asia. In Revelation 1, verse 7, Jesus instructs John, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But the people in these churches knew John. They certainly knew who he was, and many of them actually knew him personally. He was the last living apostle of the Lord. He says, I, John, saw and heard these things. And they knew who he was when he wrote to them. And in verse 18, he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book. He's putting his stamp of approval on this testimony. These things are faithful and true. They're dependable and genuine. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me 
these things. And our immediate reaction to this is, come on, John. Again, you've got to know better by now. You did this just three chapters ago. Get your act together. He tries to worship this angel again. Shouldn't he know by now that that's not okay? You know, it's easy to pick on John here. But how many of us have fallen into the same sin twice? Everybody. Everybody. Guaranteed. Our sins always look worse on somebody else. Ain't that the truth? Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. I love how the angel handles this. No, don't do that. He doesn't get mad like Moses striking the rock. He doesn't represent God that way. He just says, see that you do not do that. That's not proper. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. The angel identifies himself as a fellow servant of the Lord, just like John, and just like he identified himself before. He also serves the Lord. He also identifies himself with the prophets, bringing John a new revelation from the Lord but he himself is not to be worshipped. Angels do not accept worship, except for the fallen ones, the ones who love it. But that is not proper for an angel to do. And this is one reason that we can be confident when we look at the Old Testament Christophanies, the Old Testament appearances of Christ as the angel of the Lord. We can be confident that When someone bows down to worship what is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and the angel of the Lord accepts that worship, we can be confident that it is Jesus Christ. It's called a Christophany. That's an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Verse 9, then he said to me, see that you do not do that. He says, worship God. He doesn't just tell John what not to do, which I think we get a little too caught up with sometimes. He tells John what to do. Because if I'm trying to do something and somebody says, hey, don't do that, I'll be like, well, okay, but what do I do? You know, it leaves a hole. It leaves me wondering. There's no question what John should be doing. When he is receiving this vision of glory, he should be worshiping God. He's the only one deserving of our worship. And he said to me, do not seal the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. It's interesting that John is told not to seal up the prophecy of this book, because Daniel was told the opposite. And if you hang around with us on Thursday nights, we'll get to this. In Daniel 8.26, 
chapter 12, verses 4, 9, and 10, this apocalyptic writer of the Old Testament, Daniel, was told to seal up the things he wrote until the time of the end. Why? Because that was not yet the time of the end. It was not yet time for those things to come into understanding. Daniel's contemporaries wouldn't have understood what he was writing. You think about that. Like, we've come a long way in our understanding of Daniel's prophecies. We have more to work with. We're seeing certain things move in certain directions that point to the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies. Now, as our understanding has increased with these times, we can see more clearly what Daniel was prophesying. And now John is writing about many of the same events as Daniel, and he's being told not to seal up his message, but to send it out to the churches, to get it into circulation. Why? Because the time is at hand. So many churches today are trying to seal up this book of Revelation. And what a tragedy that is. It's here for our benefit and for our understanding. It's not cryptic in the sense that God doesn't want us to know what it means. Apocalypsis, the Greek word for revelation, literally means the unveiling. It is supposed to be an unveiling of Jesus Christ. He even gives us that divine outline in Revelation 1.19. tells us exactly what we're seeing through this whole book. The things that you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will be hereafter. And sure, there are things that we don't fully know yet, that we don't understand quite yet. But the purpose of giving us this revelation is for us to read, hear, and most importantly, keep the things that it contains. God didn't give us this book so we can shelve it, saying, we don't teach prophecy here. It's not good for new believers to get into that. That's not what it's for. And Paul would disagree with that statement. Paul spent only three weeks with the church in Thessalonica. And when he wrote back to them later, he said, you remember when I was there, I taught you about the rapture, the second coming, the Antichrist, and the signs of the times. You don't need somebody to teach you that again. After three weeks, Paul was driven out of the city, but not before he gave that church a firm foundation, a firm grounding in Scripture, not neglecting prophetic topics. And if Paul thinks that that's necessary, I think that's necessary too. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. 
Some Greek scholars have rendered this verse this way. He who is unjust, let him keep moving in that direction. He who is filthy, let him become filthier. He who is righteous, let him continue becoming more and more righteous. He who is holy, let him become holier. So what is he really saying here? Well, in relation to the prophecy in this book, it's not our job to change someone's mind. It's just our job to get the message of Revelation out there. How unfortunate it is that our churches shy away from teaching this so important book. What a shame. If you're going to share these things, you're going to be mocked. What do you mean you're just going to disappear one day? That's crazy talk. Jesus isn't coming back. Nothing has changed for millions of years. What do you mean there's going to be fire falling from heaven? The stars can't fall out of the sky. What are you talking about? If you share these things, you're going to be mocked. But rest assured, it's not your job to change their mind, just to present the truth. And don't forget that the main focus of Revelation is really Jesus Christ. In the very beginning, I believe it's the first verse, it is identified as the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Present the truth. And as Paul exhorted Timothy, preach the word. The whole thing, the whole counsel of God. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Behold, call this to mind. I am coming quickly. And in verse 20, surely I am coming quickly. Do you get the idea he's trying to tell us something? You know, three times, just in this last chapter, he says, I am coming quickly. You can find that phrase three other times in the book of Revelation, two of which are kind of a threat. One other, I am coming quickly, is a promise. That's given to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3. I am coming quickly to get you out of there, to rescue you from the time of tribulation that's about to come. Behold, I am coming quickly. That means different things to different people. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Depending on who you say Christ is, this is going to read differently to you. It can be a threat or it can be a promise. To me, it's a promise. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming to get you to be with me forever. If you do not know Christ, that should read as a threat. I am coming quickly. What does he do 
when he returns. He wipes out all the unbelieving. Behold, I am coming quickly. It's interesting here, and my reward is with me to give me everyone to give everyone according to his work. Work is singular. The rewards are according to his singular work. In John 6, 28, Jesus' disciples ask him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? They say it in the plural. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus responds, This is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Christ. That is the work of God. You provide the sinner, and he provides the Savior. It's the best deal out there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is a statement from Jesus that lays claim to his deity, to his equality with God the Father. And we're going to pick up with that verse next week. But look, you can get ulcers from watching the news. You can sit there all day and just worry, and you'll be completely occupied. (laughs) Just last night, there was a horrific act of violence in my hometown, and it kind of caught us off guard. My family's still over there. Everyone's okay. But what do we do with that? It's easy to let those intrusive thoughts take over and just really let yourself get down. I mean, it is way too easy. What do we do with all this bad news? I'll tell you exactly what we do with it. We filter it through the lens of our future home. Yes, it's tragic that people act out in such violent ways. And no doubt, as Paul said so eloquently in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're up against much more than just crazy people. Much more. And we know where all this is going. We know where the world's headed. Yes, Babylon is currently being rebuilt. That shouldn't take us by surprise. Yes, we're seeing things move in the direction of a single world-dominating government. We're seeing digital currency take over. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We must see this world in its proper context. What does the writer of Hebrews say about the hope that we have in Christ? Hebrews 6.19, he writes, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. But this anchor is unlike any other anchor you've ever seen. Why? 
Because when you throw an anchor out of your boat, it sinks to the bottom of the sea and it grabs onto a rock. It anchors you down into that spot. When we throw our anchor out, it anchors us up to this new Jerusalem, to the hope that we have in Christ. We are anchored up. That's the hope that we have in Christ, both sure and steadfast. And as you look at this world and all of the nastiness, be comforted that this is not your home. There will be a day with no curse when you will stare into the eyes of Jesus and everything will be made right. Just hang on a little longer. He's coming quickly to wrap things up. Behold, think about this. I am coming quickly. But in the meantime, love. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the identifying mark of a disciple of Christ. Do not let the world harden your heart because it will if you let it. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ and demonstrate the love of Christ to those who are outside. Love. That is the hope that we have in Christ. It anchors us to this city, the city that Abraham searched so diligently for. Now, before we wrap up, I promised you a little homework assignment for next week. I want you to read the rest of the Bible. And <laughs> at first, that sounds daunting, but I assure you it's not. It's a few verses. Now, in a few weeks, you won't want to hear me say that because we'll be back in Genesis. That'll mean a whole different thing come Genesis time. Read the rest of the Bible for next week, and we will probably... I shouldn't make any promises. We'll be wrapping up in a week or two-ish. Um, I think it will be beneficial to us to do a recap of the whole book, just to get a bird's eye view of what's going on through the whole thing. I see some heads nodding, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, so I will tentatively say that we'll probably wrap up the rest of the text of Revelation next week. The week after, we will do a recap of the whole thing, trying to get a big picture perspective, and then we'll be on to the beginning. Let's wrap up this morning in a word of prayer.